Welcome to episode 242 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Time has been odd over the last year. Weekends and weekdays blurred. Annual events that normally would mark the passage of time were canceled or postponed to later in the year. For a while, it was hard to forecast plans more than a few weeks or possibly a few months out. Our time horizon got really short. There was one way though that I was clear that time had passed. My kids. At the start of the pandemic, they were two and a quarter and four and a quarter years old. They've grown up so much in the last year. It feels like every three months they have new skills and new abilities. The other thing that has helped me experience the passage of time was my quarterly goals. As I have for years, I started 2020 with specific major and minor goals for Q1 and a sense of what I might work on later in the year. All of that got disrupted in a big way, so I had to be a lot more nimble as I moved through 2020, trying out new ways of moving my business forward. At the end of 2020, I made a decision to alter my quarterly goal setting, which was a big deal for me since quarterly goals have been so helpful for making big strides. Starting in 2021, I switched from quarterly goals to 12-week sprints. And on the surface, that sounds like the same thing, but the key difference is there are now four weeks in between each 12-week sprint. Before, there was never any point during the year when I wasn't supposed to be laser-focused on a set of goals. There's never any space to figure out what adjustments had to be made to my business strategies because I was always just moving from one quarter to the next. With this new system, I still create a strategic plan for what I want to get accomplished in 12 weeks and do my best to push any new ideas to later in the year so I don't get distracted. The magic is that I now have downtime in between my 12-week sprints for reflection and assessment, rest and rejuvenation, learning and growth, and strategic planning. I've been working with my systems and processes coach, Mary Williams, to help me make the most of April in between my sprints. With her help, I feel focused and ready to kick off another 12-week sprint next week. Your challenge for this week. Ready to try this out for yourself? This is how I use the downtime in between sprints. Week one, spend some time on reflection and assessment to get clear on what happened in the last sprint. How did you do with your sprint goals? What adjustments do you need to make to achieve any that you didn't meet? Week two, the focus is on rest and rejuvenation. In other words, take time off from work. Week three is for, quote, just in case learning. Catch up on replays, podcasts, and other content that wasn't highly relevant, also known as just-in-time learning, during the sprint. Week four, take what you learned from your assessment, from taking downtime, and from all that random but interesting content, and figure out your strategic goals for the next sprint. Try this, and let me know how it goes. I have a question for you, though, before we dive into this week's interview. Do you need some accountability as you work on your sprint goals? 
Masterminds are a great way to get the support you need as you execute your plans. I've been running paid and pure masterminds for years. I also pay good money to be in them because I believe in the value of a well-run mastermind filled with fellow entrepreneurs. I'm doing a listenings tour to better understand what prospective members are looking for in a professionally facilitated mastermind. If this piques your curiosity, I'd love to schedule a chat. Email me at Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com to get started. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest believes collaboration happens when conversations turn into action. He is the creator of Idea Climbing, the result of his 21-year case study interviewing and researching successful people and companies about collaboration and mentoring. He works with business owners and marketers to increase communication with their current clients while attracting new ones faster through interview content, virtual events, interactive media, and mentoring programs. Along the way, he stumbled into the world of improv and discovered that improv isn't about being funny. It's about collaboration. It's an art, a science, and a lifestyle. Since then, he's integrated improv rules into his business presentations and everyday life. It's shifted his worldview. Please join me in welcoming Mark J. Carter. Great to be here. Thank you, Robbie. Mark, thanks for uh, joining us from your home office in Chicago, Illinois. Thrilled that you're here. And as you know, there's a show of building strong networks, but the context is leadership, because as you'd probably agree, no one achieves success in a vacuum. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I define leadership as creating a shared goal. It's not telling people what to do or uh, just because you're higher up on the hierarchy. It's creating a company goal that aligns with their personal goals and then reaching out and achieving them together so everybody wins. And it's bringing other people up. I love this shared goal, bring people up so that they also believe in the shared goal. Yes. Yeah. They feel like they have some, in some way, shape or form, they feel like they have some kind of ownership over it, over so, the result. So buy-in, it has to be important to their own personal goals and everyone sort of moves in the same direction. And that would, that, yeah, that's a great, I love this definition because it's an active, I feel like their leadership has like a verb. It's not just a noun. It's a thing mm -hmm. that someone is able to accomplish. Absolutely. Without a doubt. All right. So Mark, nice, concise. I love it. So tell me, when did you start to realize you maybe had some of these tendencies, some of these, these uh, leadership skill sets? In hindsight, I would say college. I don't think I really realized it at length at the time, but if there was a class project, I was picked to lead the team more often than not. I was in a co-ed professional business fraternity and I held, you know, a bunch of positions from a committee to two vice president positions to the president. And it's just the story of thinking of, it's really thinking about it now back in college. Like I didn't even know what I didn't know that I was getting leadership skills before I even graduated. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm actually now curious who you were even before then for you to have been like seen as a person who could take on those leadership roles. What kind of kid were you in the playground? Like, were you kind of organizing your friends or holding back? running for office? What, what was your life like back then? That is a great question. It actually would have started back then in first through fifth grade. I had, and I'm using air quotes, clubs 
and I made I would make little ID cards, and you know, if my friends did stuff or did certain things, they could become a member of the club, and they would carry a little half of a three by five card with my writing on it in their wallet because it showed that they were a member of a club. I mean, that was back when we still had skating parties <laughs> and roll the rinks. <laughs> I love this. You, you like, like, if I can only get my hands on a laminating machine. <laughs> I would have been one happy little kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I actually, uh, some of my earliest memories were doing entrepreneurial things in, in elementary school before I knew they were entrepreneurial before I, I, you know, when it, when it was just like a cute thing to do as a kid, but not a thing I thought was of as a business. And for you, it was like creating these clubs, having these like little cards, people identified, and, and for you, what do you think was behind you wanting to create these clubs? Was it about knowing who was in, who was out, or was it about giving people a place to belong? Probably, yeah, it was about giving people a place to belong and just feeling like they're part of something. And it was good to be the leader, of course. I mean, you know, usually it is, unless it's really bad times, and it's not good to be the leader because all fingers point upwards. But back then, yeah, giving people a place to belong. So did you, you said first to fifth grade, did you actually do this throughout all those years? At least fourth and fifth grade. Wow. I don't remember before that. I'm not quite sure, but I know at least fourth and fifth grade. So like you're this like nine-year-old, 10-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> running clubs. <laughs> running, running these ad hoc clubs. <laughs> this is amazing. So when you were around 12, did you have a sense of who you would be like later on in life? Did you have a a sense of what you wanted to become as far as like jobs and careers and aspirations like that? No, middle school, middle school were rough years for me. Parents, family, divorce, all that happy, happy, great stuff. So middle school was a shaky ground for me. Uh, high school was high school started getting better, made some new friends, got a job outside of my school district. So I started hanging out with, at the time they were older, but like, you know, 21, 22 year olds and had real world jobs. So I kind of got to see a little bit of it then. I think I finally, I kind of unconsciously knew I wanted to be entrepreneurial. I was in college because I, I went through the classes. I picked marketing because the marketing major people were honestly more fun. They were the two drink minimum people. So I'm like, okay, uh, I want to be a marketing major. And two weeks before I graduated high school, no college, I read a Tony Robbins book and said, I love what he says about his lifestyle and coaching and helping people and being on stage and consulting. I want to do that. So that's when I quit my job and never looked back. This is really curious because I've spoken to other people who became professional speakers who early on did get influenced by the greats, like, like a Tony Robbins. Um, but they didn't realize that they could do what Tony did. Cause like, what the greats do were just so kind of in this other realm. Did you connect right then that, that he was being paid and therefore this was a career that you could pursue or like uh, what part of his story led you to think this is something you could do yourself? I did realize he was being paid because in his live seminars, at least at the time, he would directly talk about or reference people pay him a million dollars a year for coaching. And those are individuals. And then he would talk about his clients, like at the time when he was big, Andre Agassi, the tennis player, I think Brooke Shields and a few other people. But he made it very clear that he had a very comfortable living and he had a lot of fun making money. It wasn't just that he was rich. It seemed like he really liked what he did. Yeah. And you're like, I'd like some of that. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, if he can do it. <laughs> yeah, if he can do it. So, so what, what was the pursuit? Did you have friends that like were speakers? Did you find your way into that community? Like, how did you start establishing yourself on that path? I didn't know what I did at the time in hindsight, I should have been networking, doing different things. I was doing, wanted to speak to colleges and high schools about neuro-linguistic program stress, the same stuff Tony Robbins talked about. I got the same certifications he did when I could from the same people that certified him. So I talked about very similar subjects. And it wasn't until Chicago that I started talking to other speakers. And I, I don't know how I didn't know that. So I talked to, I was reading books and I was buying back then there were VHS tapes of how to become a speaker, but it was very, classroom, classroom centric, I guess I'd say I wasn't in my, I didn't hit my networking phase while I was in Michigan. So it was mostly what I could learn from books. I did fly to California to get certified as a professional speaker. Uh, but nothing that I realized at the time that I could have been doing. Uh, did you tap into the national speakers association along the way, or did that also happen later on? That happened much later on. I'm involved with them now in Illinois, it's, and I've only been involved for like a year and a half, two years. I because I re, moving after moving to Illinois, I realized that I'm a facilitator. I'm not a keynote speaker. I like the interaction. I like the back and forth. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think of them. I just figured, well, those are for speakers that get on stage and do keynotes, which most of them are. But I've met some facilitators. I'm, even at this stage, I'm learning so much. That is definitely one of the. Oh my god. How could I not have looked them up? <laughs> well, for everyone uh, listening, I want to make sure people know that anybody who has any kind of speaking role, whether it's within a company, whether you're a keynote, workshop facilitator, presenter, fac- facilitator, whatever you want to call yourself, trainer, all are welcome under the big tent at the National Speakers Association. But I think um, while it, it, it kind of appears that most people are keynotes because the ones who have the most visibility are the people who do keynotes. Um, And, you know, it's not, it may not even be the majority. It's just like, they're very visible and very engaged. They also give a lot back. Those are the people who tend to like offer lots of uh, training support and and run these on committees and such. But, um, but it sounds like you kind of found your way through when you first got started, how old were you when you were trying to like speak to these high school students? 1999. So 23. So you're just just beyond college thinking, you know, let me give back. Let me take what I'm learning from Tony Robbins, translate it to the sort of youth component. Yes. And were you were you finding your way in? Like, were you networking your way into these schools? Like, how did you approach getting in even? Everything was a cold call. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea. Nobody taught me about networking in college. I did it unofficially through friends. I got jobs through friends, but I didn't think of it as, you know, networking where you hand out a business card, you have a networking relationship. I looked at it, well, this is my friend who happened to be able to get me a job. And everything was cold calls. And I luckily, I didn't call it mentoring at the time, but I sought out any successful people in different areas. And one of my regular customers at the diner I waited tables at was a high school administrator making like 90 some thousand dollars a year. And I was just like, you're doing something right. If you're, you know, in high school and you make what? And it was people like that when I discovered mentoring that I was, I was telling him, I'm reaching out. I'm fat at the time, faxing all these, you know, proposals in. I'm not getting any gigs. What do I do? 
And he point, he said, how much are you charging? And I said, I'm, I'm, I told him $150. And he <laughs> said, you want to know why you're not getting gigs? Because you need to start at like 1500 And that's where you would start. No one's going to hire you at 150 And that's when it started to sink in. It's like, maybe if I talk to more smart people, I'll learn a lot faster. Wow. This is actually such a good life lesson for you to be sharing with all of us because I think it's really hard when we start to know our value because in some ways what you were sharing with your audiences didn't feel hard for you because you had a passion for it and you obviously had a gift speaking like that part came to you pretty you know easily and so the idea of charging i mean a hundred dollars is still a lot of money to a person in their early 20s like that's that's money but the people buying don't think of you as a serious player because you were charging 10% of what most people might charge or, you know, some, some small fraction. So um, I think you're right. Like getting to be part of a circle of other people, um, just understanding like how to even value what you do, whatever it is you're doing. But it sounds like you, you that's, that helps you kind of along a different path. And, you, you know, this uh, intro I had here, it says that for 21 years, you've been researching and interviewing um, mm-hmm. individuals and organizations around around this concept. And I have to tell you, just, it sounds impressive in a, in a big picture kind of way, because I can't think of anything I've done for two decades straight that I could like put an arc like that. I'm like, I've talked to people for 20 years, but have I done it in a thoughtful way? So when did you realize you were pursuing this question that you, that now has become a thing, or did you did that become the origin story after you realized you had the answer? Like, did you go back and realize, oh, I've been doing this for twenty years? It was twenty two different years stand out. Twenty fourteen, one of my I was doing mentoring programs, speaking about mentoring, and I got a lot of my mentoring programs. I built them based on advice at that time whatever, 17 years of talking to people because almost every successful person I talked to in hindsight, mentoring was part of their journey. So I had a ton of content around mentoring and one of my mentors said, you got to call it something different because you're teaching people how to do it. When people hear mentoring, they think you're going to get set up with a random, you know, Southside Chicago school kid. You're going to have coffee with him or her. You're going to share stories. He said, you're getting tactical. And I ended up trademarking the term idea climbing. And in 2016, I realized I have a book here, not knowing it would take three years of going through paper and pencil, analog notebooks. So I said, well, if I'm doing this, content marketing was starting to catch on. I figured, why keep my conversations private? And I started doing videos, live videos. If there were speakers at events, I would piggyback the event and we'd I'd take my camera guy and we'd shoot them. Of course, remote videos. Did a few years of those, built up a portfolio on YouTube. Now when I can, I do podcasts to share people's genius about some specific how-to thing. So I realized that I had something different in 2014 and I realized that I had idea climbing in 2016. I'm really glad you drew this distinction or that you got help during this distinction around what it is you're offering. Um, I have uh, done some trainings around strategic volunteering, and I've also helped run some mentoring programs for as an alum of some leadership programs. And um, I always focus on how does the mentee prepare for the conversation? Because so many of them just sort of like show up to the appointment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if, if they show up and if they show up on time, let's assume those things actually happen, which is in itself a problem. Mm-hmm. But like, 
you know, I'm working with adults, you know, this isn't, these aren't even kids. These are adults who've gone through a leadership program, but you're connecting them with an alum from 10 years ago, who's clearly further along in their field. And they just kind of would show up as an empty vessel and they would just like gab for the next hour and not really um, like get to anything useful. Mm -hmm. And that's where mentoring gets a bad name because like the mentee would be like, well, that was, you know, that was nice, but it wasn't really helpful. So you must be approaching this very differently from the person who shows up as an empty vessel. What is it that is your sort of like key difference that's helping people to really make the most out of these opportunities? Well, the big picture, and we've done this through different colleges and universities, and when everything clears up and the doors open again, we're just starting to get into incubators, accelerators, because it's, it's startups and college students that we like to focus on. And great question. What I realized is first 30 miles high, our programs have a video library. We actually train in their two to five minutes for a short attention span theater college students or brand new startups. We teach them how to do mentoring and to answer your question, going into a meeting, the mentee is prepared with a meeting agenda and mentoring is about the checklist, advice, support, and connections to solve an immediately pressing problem. So that's what they get walked through in the online classroom, the one-on-one -on -one meetings that I associate or group meetings through Zoom for the mentoring program. They walk in knowing I have this problem and it's not how to get a job. It's why don't you have a job? Oh, I need networking because I need networking skills is different than I need my resume is different than I need to do a better interviews and do mock interviews. Just like with startups, the question that my mentors would tell me they hate to hear is how do I get funding? Well, that's not the real problem. Why don't you have funding? Same thing. Oh, I need a different pitch deck. I need networking skills. I need to go to more events. So they walk in knowing what they're going to ask and knowing to ask for experiential advice. What did you do when you were in my shoes? Or who do you know that was in my shoes? Support is validation of the direction. You're, you're doing things right. You need to change direction. And connections are the ones that are most left off that I did naturally when I was younger. If I had a good mentoring meeting, heck yeah. Now that we've had a meeting and had a good rapport, who else should I be talking to? And my mentors were connecting me. And then I turned around to add value to them and started connecting my mentors to each other. And that was another huge aha moment of, I can pay them back by making introductions. And I started doing that. And I teach the mentees to do that. So many good things to unpack here. Um, one, the, I want to go back to earlier when you said you're working on your book and that you then spent three years going through all the analog handwritten notes. And I, I think a lot of us are guilty of going to these conversations and not taking notes either in the meeting or right after and just absorbing the information and not being able to tie back the advice to the person who gave it. So we don't close the loop. I say we, cause I've, I've done this too. It's like, I'm like, I'm, I'm who did I hear this good idea from? I want to go back and tell them that I tried it. Now I got to go back and figure out who was it I talked to in the last month. And it's a lot of people. So it's hard to narrow it down. So you sound like an organized person when it comes to that instinctually. And that sounds like part of what, you know, you're preparing people. And the other thing that I was thinking about, and I love your thoughts on this, mm -hmm. um, a lot of what you're talking about sounds like the kind of prep work people need before they go into a mastermind session. And oh, yeah. I think a lot of people going to masterminds, I've run masterminds, I've been part of very expensive masterminds. And I think a lot of people, including me some weeks, show up not sure exactly what question we want to put to the group. And it sounds like your videos and your sort of 
path into into this conversation would help you know the world of people who who are in these peer or professional masterminds so your thoughts on that it definitely would when i facilitate masterminds they're successful because i get them to say what i know they need to say so without technically without training them I'm getting them to do the right thing, answer the right questions because I'm asking them. So instead of saying, here's what to do, like with my mentoring programs, they get training, they have an agenda, it's their job to write it and ask the right questions. In my mastermind groups, I ask the right questions, I elicit the right answers, therefore the people can help each other out, make connections, solve problems, become clients, get clients and everything in between. So it's around, um, it's really about having a strong facilitator uh, in these spaces to kind of pull people out. And obviously the more prepared they are going in, same thing with a, a good mentor could help a mentee, like ask the right questions and get them, you know, instead of like, how do I get funding? They could be like, let's flip the question to why don't you have funding? Um, but, you know, if you go in already thinking differently, you'll get quicker to those results. I mean, mm -hmm. this is like, this is what I, so for me, some of this sounds like common sense and yet it's so uncommonly, use like it's it's like a practical thing i'm also very practical in the way i teach um i like giving people things they can you know take action on right then that'll have an impact on their life like immediately and it sounds like you're driven to do that less than the uh it's not like big philosophy you're like here do these three things and mm -hmm. so for for people who are um saying they can't find a mentor because i think that's another thing i've heard is they don't know how to find a mentor and you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs on the listening in right now, and you know, they they're like trying to figure out who to pace themselves with. That's, that's how I've been thinking about it for a while. The people I've met with as accountability partners for a few years, I I knew more. I was like a little further along than all the people I was doing accountability meetings with, and I was like, ah, I gotta I gotta shift this. So I actually broke that by finally like paying for a really great coach. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, to kind of force me to play in a different league and then surround myself with some of the people they were coaching. And then I started to, you know, now I'm in a room where I'm not the smartest person because like, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. Um, but what do you think someone who's like, you know, somewhat established a couple, two, three, five years into being an entrepreneur, but is now trying to, you know, get themselves, I don't know, to that next level, but they're like, I don't know how to find a mentor. Is it, do you think they already have one? They just don't realize it? Like, is, is there something that they're not doing to like capitalize on the relationships they already have or do they really not have any? That's a big question. Let's see. As far as the people two to five years in their business, we'll say entrepreneur, within their circle of influence, I guarantee they have op uh, mentoring opportunities. If they're, because I'm saying guarantee 95% because 95% of entrepreneurs are networkers by trade. That's just what they do. It's almost second nature to them. One thing, as far as a piece of advice, is don't ask someone to be your mentor, which is totally counterintuitive. And I'm, I have, I've been blessed with, oh, for the love of God, I still have phenomenal mentors and people that have popped in and out of my life. And yet I've never formally asked someone because it's, especially if you just meet someone or you're reaching out cold, it's like, ask, it's like proposing on a first date, awkward. It's just weird because then they think, oh, I have to make time every month and ask, hey, can I have 20 minutes of your time? And that's verbiage in emails or verbally that has worked magic. And it's not just me, the people I've taught down to college freshmen. If you say, can we have a meeting? Pre-pandemic, they could instinctively think lunch. 
which becomes travel, even 15 minutes to walk across a, a few blocks, plus an hour for lunch, plus 15 minutes back. And they either don't respond or say no, because the ask wasn't clear. So um, I, I want to uh, understand a little bit about how you established yourself, because having a good idea and having a business are not the same thing. So when did you realize you had a business? That was when I moved to Chicago. I was a results coach. And again, using I was a life coach. I figured I'll be Tony Robbins. My life's path did not turn out that way, fortunately or unfortunately, whichever it might be. But I moved here and I was trying to get coaching clients by cold calling in Chicago, which I realized this is not going to work in a city like Chicago. It barely worked in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So uh, continuing my what is now my case study, anyone who talked about networking, relationships, or anything, I reached out to them. Whether they wrote the book, I saw them on a Chicago-centric news show, and people were phenomenal with their advice. And I started getting referrals, and I realized I had a business when someone said, you know, forget this life coaching stuff. How did you get introduced to me? It was a CEO that's guarded. And I explained to him what I just told you. It's like, I'm interviewing people and I'm building my own system for networking and referrals. And I still remember he said, forget life coaching. If you can teach my team to do what you just did, I'll pay you for that. And a business was born. I'm like, okay, I'll change over my website, get new business cards. And for years it was like mortgage, insurance, real estate, teaching teams how to get build relationships that lead to referrals without being on one end of the spectrum, pure sales and a turnoff. And then the other end of the spectrum, the most popular person in a room without two dimes to scratch together. That's amazing. And again, another example of we need someone outside of us to point out the obviousness of what we're able to offer the world because we are doing something. I mean, you're clearly putting work in, but for you, it was enjoyable. And it seemed like it was a lot easier than cold calling was doing this sort of follow-up and relationship building and and like the fact that you were getting past the gatekeepers. And I, mean, I love that their CEO sort of recognized that gift and named it for you in such a way that you were able to then, you know, turn around and, and develop a program around it. Um, my passion is networking and, and building community, building relationships. And, um, I, you know, I think what's hard is that a lot of people say they, they have trouble with networking and it's like not their strongest skill set. But I haven't found a lot of people who want to invest time or money into improving it. But the one caveat is when you do it and it's, there's a business outcome. So for you to be able to like help sort of the professionals who are selling a service get better referrals, it's, it's just like magic. It's like this is exactly what they need to be doing. And I have some great examples of amazing uh, real estate professionals who do this such a phenomenal job. And I also have my worst examples of this from the same community of people who are being really pushy and salesy. And so it's not about an industry, but it is really about the individuals who approach it. What is it that you think makes a person pay attention, even when they don't want the product themselves right then, but they're like, they'll, they'll stay in that relationship because I'm not buying a house, but I'm still in a relationship with several amazing real estate professionals mm -hmm. because I like them. But what do, you, what do you think helps them do what they're doing versus what most people do, which is kind of a little, a little too overt or a little bit too pushy? I think they help. I just talked to a financial advisor today, actually, through a referral, which I'm always a little bit leery about. You never know because uh, the industry has a bad reputation for being pushy. 
And I'm going to have a call with him in another few weeks because he offered to make connections for me. He sh- and he actually listened like about the book and he would expound on it. Not just, oh, congratulations, you're writing a book, but he, the, the deeper questions. Oh, that's so interesting. What about this? And how did you do it? He was genuinely interested in me. And that was the first thing. And I think that's rare these days to have. So, I mean, if you think about anyone listening, thinks about it right now, when's the last time someone really was interested in you? Not just listen to be cordial, asked questions, wanted to know, dug deeper. That is getting so rare because people are getting used to social media where they're just talking about themselves or what they did. And I think that, I think that's one big one for the people. I don't know if it's true for you and your friends, but it's so simple. Show interest, a genuine interest in other people and don't always talk about yourself. This is actually one of the reasons I love hosting a podcast. I've had friends of mine, like colleagues who I'm very friendly with come on the show and we end up going deep into their life in a way that I don't think we ever have gotten there by our casual random conversations at conferences. And, you know, I get to sort of have them in that seat and, and really dig in and ask them questions. It is really a gift to give somebody to like show up. I always think of Bill Clinton as an example, like how present he was with people, even when like he was just shaking their hands and, you know, just trying to give people that, that like couple of minutes of your attention and then leave the conversation better, you know, than, than it started, like leave people feeling good about themselves. And those are the kind of people who want to then come back and talk to you again not the people you like, you know, push the business card into their hand mm-hmm. in a spray and pray kind of kind of way. Um, this, this is awesome. I love meeting people who have cracked the code on this and really thought about um, how to do this. One of the questions I always ask my guests is around how you personally are nurturing and sustaining connections in your larger network. You know, you've got your, your inner circle of people that you're, you're always going to stay in touch with, whatever the rhythms might be. You, there's no, no question about that. But then there's like the second sort of third layers out, the people that maybe you see once a year at a conference or every five years ago you worked together, but you're not working together now. These are people that you 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 like them. They like you. You were, you were friendly, but for whatever reason, they're not in your life all, all the time right now. How do you nurture and sustain connections with these sort of weaker connections? Any habits Excellent. or philosophies? Excellent question. That's something uh, with the pandemic and Zoom getting big, I was, I cracked the code on networking on LinkedIn and actually had to stop marketing because I was getting too many messages into my inbox, a good problem to have. And one of my friends pointed out to me, said, that's nice. I was tracking at the time about 400, 400 conversations in an Excel spreadsheet. Plus I have a CRM. And he said, but how many second calls are you having? How many third calls are you having? And it was so simple, but so profound that I flipped it from 80% new people 20% 20% current network to 80% current network and introductions but from my current network, 20%, maybe even less, new people. Because if it's all about know, like, and trust in the entrepreneurial space, why not start with someone who at least knows and likes you? You might have to build trust. And what I do is I make it about them. We haven't talked, two things, I either make it about them, we haven't talked in a year, or it's been a while since we spoke. And I want to hear what you're working on and who you need to know. Because with entrepreneurs every four to six weeks, much less every year, our, our networks are, I, don't, I might not know anyone you need when we talk at that event, virtually or live. I don't know who I'm going to meet next week, though, 
that could be a good contact for you. And I tell them the story about second, third, fourth call. So they expect that they're going to hear from me in four to eight weeks, depending on the level of connectivity we have. Is it just a check-in or was there some kind of rapport? Are we working on similar projects? And then with what we touched on earlier for people, some people that go back years where I don't even know if we should set up a call because I don't have, I can't do 10 random Zoom calls a day with the hopes of finding someone good. And what I do is I invite them, I don't charge for it. I invite them to my virtual mastermind groups. So I get six to eight people on Zoom. I I moderate, so I get right to what they're working on and who they need to know. And then I cherry pick. It's like, hey, you mentioned that you're you're coaching entrepreneurs now. You've been doing it two years. Guess what? I'm writing a book that's targeting entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people. Let's talk. Or I run a podcast that skews towards entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people. Would you like to be a guest? Do you know a guest? But I make it about them and helping them. And the good networkers reciprocate. Then they ask me, who do you need to know? Of course, yeah. This is the, the giver's get, right? This is Bob Berg. This is um, the this Go is Giver like, series. Yeah, the Go Giver series. This is like so smart. Um, thinking about Adam Grant too, like give and take. Like this is the mm-hmm. when, when you when you read those books, you're like, yeah, exactly. Why isn't the whole world built this way? Why does everyone know this? I'm. Um, I love this distinction too about it's not just like getting on calls, but it's about building a relationship. It's not the but the one off. It's about do you continue to stay and nurture that, you know, that person or that community. And then, um, and you mentioned that you're tracking this with a mixture of spreadsheets and CRMs. Like, how do you now make sure, like, how do you track the the initial person and then the follow-up and all that? Like, do you have, or is this systematized in some way or? For a broad stroke, I use Excel every day and I know it's simple. And I have the, in columns, the date we met, and if it's, if it's an introduction, like from Robbie, I'll write, you know, John Doe and in parentheses via Robbie. So I know where it came from. Cause that's, I forget like who, even who introduced us. If I don't write it down, I'm not going to, I think at the time I'll remember then a week and 20 conversations go by. Not so much. So what we talked about, and sometimes it's just connecting, but if they write a descriptive email, I cut and paste it into Excel. So the email said, I want to talk to you because, and then the last time we had a connection and next steps. So if it's next steps and I don't know, I just write TBD for to be determined. If it's follow- Say these columns again. Do you have name? The first one is date we met. Date we met. Name and where we met through. Like it's through a networking group, the name of the networking group or the name of a person or blank if I reached out to them. Uh, About what? Sometimes, like I said, it's as simple as one word connecting. Other times I cut and paste the email there. If it's a second or third call, I'll cut and paste them and put them all in Excel. So I realize, oh, you know, he wants to be a guest on my show. Connecting just means I don't know. We had rapport, so we'll talk. Or in everything in between. Last time we talked and next steps. So I can go through and I, it, it's great just to do a quick scroll and realize, oh my God, I have, you know, three months, I sent, I use Calendly for my scheduling. And I'll look and sometimes realize that could be a client or a good connection. The last contact was sent Calendly. And then I go into Gmail and search, sure enough. Okay, great. Ping, I'll ping them again. And a lot of people, oh, you know, I'm so sorry, I got busy. But before the Excel spreadsheet, I was losing connections because, I was just talking to too many people. I think this is so valid and I'm glad you're bringing it up. Um, I, I keep trying on different systems and I think that like, I, I'm, I always say, um, 
I, I feel I'm agnostic about what system you use as long as you use it. And uh, I, I keep trying different things. I've now recently discovered an app that I might be playing with. I'm also kind of drawn to the simplicity of using just a stack of index cards. A friend of mine discussed that on this show, Ron Tester's episode was really interesting because I always tease, like it could be anything, even just stack index cards. And then it turns out that's exactly what he uses. <laughs> um, he just like looks the one on top and then d- takes an action. And as he meets people, he adds them to their pile. And it's just like constant rotation. And then when he gets someone, he's like, ah, that's not really a person I want to talk to much right now. He puts them off to the side. And so it's just, I, I think you're right that like we could easily meet, you and I are probably going to be able to easily meet lots of people, but how do you form those meetings into relationships? And that's what you're talking about now. And I love this distinction. And as you're um, doing all this, do you set aside time for this like in your week or is it as you think of it? Like, how do you, you said you touch Excel every day. Like, is it every day you're looking at this list? Every day I look at the list and I have Calendly, uh, the times for people can get a hold of me are pre-programmed into Calendly so they can only access certain parts of my calendar. Unless I'm recording a podcast, I don't really open my calendar up before 11 or 12, mornings are mine. But more importantly, if someone, and it happened last week, wants to know about my mentoring programs because she might want to use them, I can always say, yes, I have time. Can you talk at 9 a.m. on Wednesday morning? Right. So if opportunities, which they do pop up, I don't want to have a completely, I would look good on paper, but I don't want a booked calendar because some of them are first time calls and I don't know where it's going to go. I need to, and I don't want to say no, Mr. or Mrs. Client. I don't have time for you for two weeks. Keep your money to yourself. (laughs) I don't do that. (laughs) I had a problem with that actually, Mark, last year. um, I was working uh, for a company doing coaching, which was taking up an enormous amount of time and my business that I had to reinvent myself. So prior to the pandemic, I was teaching people how to network at conferences and then the at part stopped being like appropriate. We're no longer at mm-hmm. things. Uh, so I, I reinvented myself as a virtual event design consultant and an executive Zoom producer. And I'm training and certifying certified virtual event professionals, um, speakers and meeting professionals to do that work. And my business like took off. And I, I literally had those moments where a prospect would want to have a call or a client would want a different meeting time. And there was like no wiggle room mm-hmm. on the board. So I'm, I'm really feel grateful that I now have that wiggle room back. But I guess the idea of using, I use schedule ones, use Calendly. It makes booking these, these calls so much easier. The back and forth of trying to find a time. I, I don't know why anyone wants to still do that when we have so many more options. Um, but you're really kind of in there all the time thinking about your network. And that, that mm-hmm. has, I imagine, propelled your business forward because you're nurturing your network all the time. Have you seen direct results from this effort? The mastermind groups that I mentioned, every single time I'll get at least one person that I hadn't talked to for a while that says, I can't attend, but I looked at your LinkedIn profile. We need to reconnect. So I, that, I use that for that to drive it forward. And with the pandemic and pivoting with idea climbing being, a, which I knew it's a, it's a brand. It's not like I switched from selling insurance to selling mortgages. People know what both of those are. So it was really fostering relationships, multiple touch points to get, you know, okay, idea climbing sounds interesting and down the ways to have someone say, actually, I I think I need your help. I'm in a similar role. I'm pivoting. I don't know what to do. I'm just throwing my hands in the air. So that's a big part of it is whether it's paid or unpaid. It's at the end of the day, it's helping people solve problems. 
I mean, I want to hear more about this, uh, Mark. I'm, I want to hear more about this uh, virtual mastermind. So, you, so occasionally you host a free virtual mastermind, and you invite how many people and how long? Like, is this just a this is a way for you to like connect a bunch of people together? It's sort of it could be a dinner, but for you, you do it construct constructively by facilitating, which also shows off your skills as a facilitator. Mm -hmm. um, so rather than be like eight of us go for dinner, you're like let's all get together and mastermind. Is that kind of, am I getting the right gist? Yeah, it's six to eight people. And I do at least one a month. Last month I started, and then this month uh, in March again, experimenting with co-hosts. So we get a diverse group of people. It's not just my network. And it's, it's really to keep my name out there. And it is a way to, for me to consolidate my time. Six to eight conversations in 60 minutes. And it's, what I love it's, is that I've been a proponent of... Um, of dinners and, you know, just kind of hosting those gatherings. Um, before we got on the air, I was mentioning Dory Clark because um, she's been a, a friend, coach, and mentor for a very long time. Precisely the kind of person that I never asked to be my mentor, but clearly has been. Um, but, you know, she had this really great method of, you know, moving, moving to New York City and then every two weeks was hosting a dinner and did that for a couple of years and just really developed a robust network. And when, we were in, when she was in Boston, we would co-host dinners together. Um, so, you know, each of us bring three or four people, you know, show up someplace, but you're doing that with a different spin. It's not just let's all have dinner. You're specifically telling them we're going to mastermind and then you're showing off how you do that. Yes. It's, it's the facilitation that keeps people on track. And one of the biggest things that I point out to people afterwards, what do you do? I tell them one or two sentences and why do you do it? So I flip them into story mode right away and people are comfortable with what do you do? I think sometimes it's like, it's not going to help me if you're highly technical or an intricate type of industry, telling me what you do for an hour is going to do nothing but confuse me. And it's not going to drive your business, but I rock it through that. I don't let, I don't joke. I don't let my personality, I just get it done because everyone needs to get it out of their freaking system. So get it out. And then why do you do it? That's when I start the back and forth and I get people to laugh and I get them telling stories and what are you working? And I just, right to the point with, a, with some stories and laughter in between. And it works like, it works just like a charm. That's awesome. You're reminding me that um, once upon a time, I ran a dinner series that basically was a mastermind. Um, it was a community of people. Um, it started out with Ramit Sethi's community. Uh, I had paid to be part of Ramit's you know, world and I wanted more value from, from that because I wasn't actually taking the time to watch the videos, to be honest. And so I, I put it out to the world. I found people who were in this community who lived local. And then I eventually opened it up where I was inviting people, about 80 different people were on the invite list who were part of varying online communities that I was part of. And that was a way for anyone who lived within driving distance of Boston, we'd come, it'd be four people, 12 people, but I would run it mastermind style where I'd be like, okay, each, you know, each person gets a quick hot seat. We're gonna go around, we're gonna hear from each other. Um, but yeah, I mean, the value of doing that now, of course, doing it virtually means there's no more of a constraint. Um, I might, I might borrow this idea from you because I, I love it. And I love the, I love running masterminds and love facilitating, but what a great way to amplify your time. Cause that's mm -hmm. part of the issue, right? It's like, we, we could be on zoom all day having these calls, but that's not actually, you know, going to make us money and, and provide a livelihood. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, I won't do that. <laughs> so Mark, yeah, it's busy is not the goal. Um, the Mark, this is my, my wrap-up question, but it's one of my favorite questions. If uh, we were connecting a year from now, and I, I'm going to guess right now we're going to stay in touch just based on who we are. But um, 
uh, it's a year from now and, and I'm asking you how your year was and you're telling me all the amazing things that have happened. I want to know what are we going to be celebrating a year from now? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? The book comes out and does well. <clears throat> An idea climbing is becoming a brand. It's not something we're like it is now, which it's new. People lean in. Like I said, it takes a few conversations because it's like, what is this thing? I haven't heard that term before, but it sounds interesting to a Dory Clark style career. I would say that's what it, that's what it would. That's the easiest point of reference I have is more because she loves what she does and she has her, co you know, and she gets paid very well. She has her coaching program. She has her. Um, whatever about being visible as an expert program, that's where I want to be in a year. That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to celebrate that with you. That would be phenomenal for you and for everybody who gets to learn with you. How can people find you and follow your work? The best place to go is Mark J. Carter, C-A-R-T-E-R.com. It has links to all my social media profiles. My podcast is there under the idea climbing section. And so everything about me is there. Fantastic. We will have all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mark. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 242. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode with Mark, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. And I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.